Welcome to the Personality Portrait Podcast, where we challenge what we think we know about how our personality works and is shaped. I am psychologist Franco Greco. In each episode, I have a conversation with a guest exploring what has shaped their lives and personality. Thanks for listening and enjoy the podcast. In today's episode, it's great to chat with Adam Fennessy. Adam has over 20 years of public sector experience at state and federal levels, including four years as the Secretary of the Victorian Department of Environment, Land, Water and Planning. Adam has also worked in the private sector as a partner with global advisory firm Ernst & Young. In 2020, Adam took on the role as a Victorian Public Sector Commissioner. This podcast was recorded during the second COVID Melbourne lockdown in late 2020. Yeah, Franco, it's a really great time for me to be back in the Victorian public service and public sector. As you know, I'm the new Victorian public sector commissioner within the commission, and our remit is to support and ensure the integrity and the quality and the capability of the the Victorian public sector. It's something I've loved in earlier parts of my career, working on people and culture and diversity and inclusion, and that's squarely what the commission does. And in particular, coming back into government and into Victorian government during COVID, there are critical pressures on all parts of the Victorian economy and society, and particularly on the public service. And we're very specifically helping Victorian government respond to COVID, including everything from more support into DHHS to all other parts of government that are affected. And importantly, we're also looking ahead to what is the public service and the public sector going to look like as we come out of COVID to new normals and new ways of working and new ways of thinking about things. It's so interesting because as a public servant of many years, one of the things that you get instilled in you in the the Victorian public sector is pride in the fact that you're a part of the public service in Victoria and that we've got a long history of reform and long history of bringing to the cutting edge of, of change and responding to challenges. And it's taken a bit of a beating, isn't it, over the last little while? It has, Franco. I agree. Victoria has prided itself in leading a lot of reform within Victoria, but also national reform. And here we are as the jurisdiction within Australia with the greatest numbers of coronavirus cases really struggling to get those numbers down, where we responded really well initially in the crisis, did some innovative things within the public service, but now really finding it hard. That's hard for Victorian public servants because part of us as a public servant is used to saying, well, we do this work really well. And there's a bit of humility that's required there. Humility is such an important feature of good leadership. We have to be able to reach out to others, learn from others, find out what's working in other parts of, say, Australia or even globally, and admit that even though we have worked so hard, if we haven't got everything right, it might be because some things are out of our control and it might be because we just didn't have some of the best systems in place. So how do we reach out and learn from others? It takes humility and it's not easy if you've had the reputation of being one of the leading public sector parts of Australia for many years. Yeah. I remember many years ago I was in the Department of Health and Human Services and it was actually the national reform around activity-based funding and we talked a lot with Queensland at the time and they were going for their own real quality issues in their system and you could see how they responded we're going, have, we're going to have the best systems, we're going to have the best data collection, we're going to have put a lot of people into that sort of space and how they respond to crisis. And obviously, you know, you don't want crises to occur and you want to manage them. But I guess that it's, it's, it's as I keep on telling people in a way, in the Victorian context, is how, how are we going to respond to this? How are we responding to this rather than 
obviously we've got to reflect on the past, but also about how we can respond going forward. Yeah, how are we re- responding right now and what's in front of us, regardless of our past and, you know, even regardless of what we might want to do in the future, what are we doing right now? And the other point I'd, I'd like to make briefly is that after 20 years in government, I went into consulting, as you will know, and I got to work with every jurisdiction around Australia. So from a government and a public administration perspective, it was so interesting to work with Queensland government or ACT or Western Australia or New Zealand. And everyone has different history. There are some commonalities and similarities. There's also differences. So, you know, quite a vertically integrated approach to health services in Queensland compared to perhaps a more distributed model in Victoria. Each model has its pros and cons. And in particular, how does a government prepare for maybe a one in 50 year or a one in 20 year event, which is that surge capacity for a crisis? I think Victoria's got really good at that in seasonal bushfire response. Mm. But we've learned a lot from things that didn't go so well in the past. But how do we prepare for things like a pandemic event that may not happen very frequently? The last huge impact from pandemic was you know, 1918. So how do you prepare for that? where it might happen in five years' time, we might be coping with this for the next five years solid, but then it might not happen for another 20 years. That's hard because you've got to design in that resilience and that redundancy and, you know, we're all being constantly told to tighten our belts and cut our costs and improve. So that's a real challenge, not just for Victoria, but for, you know, the whole Australian public administration and the economy as well. Yeah. How does your life, in a way, prepare you for this moment, like if you think about it from that point of view, what are you responding to in your own mind just personally to this? Well, I love the way you bring the question into the personal because, yes, we're public servants or we lead in business or in community, but we're all ultimately individuals with our own values and our personal stories. I learnt a lot, particularly working through other emergencies when I was in Victorian government and I'm back in Victorian government now, that you cannot control everything Sometimes you will not know what's going to happen the next day. You've got to learn to live with ambiguity. Mm. And most of all, as I mentioned earlier, you've got to learn how to reach out to others and how to take the best advice. And you've got to know when to stand back and let others and experts step in and also when to then stand forward when there's a gap and show some leadership. So, for example, for fires, I learned that in the state control centre, I didn't have a role. I wasn't an expert. My role was actually just to go around and make sure our staff were being supported. Mm. Whereas when we needed to say something more public to communities who'd been really impacted, I did have a role. So that's what I learned from my experience. But right now, I learned that each day you've got to work, well, what does the situation require of me today, this week, and draw upon that personal strength. The other thing I learned is that if you're in a job and you're worried about making mistakes or, you know, keeping your job, we're always going to make mistakes. So you really have to act with courage in responding to crises and you've got to act to manage the issue and not let your own personal anxieties come into it about your job because if your actions are filtered through, oh, well, you know, maybe I'll just take a safe decision here, then that's probably not going to be the right decision. And that's really hard because we've seen a lot of people over many years, particularly in emergency response, get criticised by commissions of inquiry or other public after-the-event scrutiny. It's really hard when you're in the moment having to make those decisions and that's when you've really got to draw on your own courage, your own values, your own networks. Yeah. Is that something for you that's innate 
Do you think that you're born with that or you just you grew you evolved into that, your perspective? I think that it's probably a bit of a mix, but I do think it's more the second. You learn those skills, you mm. evolve. You know, if, if, I, if we had to be born with these things, then either you're going to be good at it or you're not or on a spectrum. But I, I do think that if we bring our best selves to these situations, we can look to others who do it well, learn from them. We can seek out mentors. I learn a lot from senior people in that crisis context. And the other thing, and we know this in the public sector and in any context really, is practice helps a lot. Mm. So to stick on the emergency management and crisis theme, when I first became a secretary in government and first had to join the State Crisis and Resilience Council, I was really worried. I thought, I don't know anything about this stuff compared to those around the table. But what worked really well for me was when we did our first desktop scenario mm. in the crisis. And I do remember, I'll mention him publicly because he's a great leader, Ken Lay was a mm. former police commissioner of Victoria Police. The scenario was a combination of a terrorist attack and I think a bushfire. And all, of mm. course, hypothetical. We all sat around the table. This was my first time at a table for these sorts of things. And just having someone there like Ken who said, right, we're starting now. Okay, what are we doing in transport? What are we doing in health? He knew what he was doing. Scenario testing and practice really helps. So when, in fact, I had to sit around a real crisis meeting and table and I'd sat around a lot, it wasn't the first time. And as a public service, we did that every year. We would desktop and scenario test fire. We'd do it within the department and we'd do multiple scenarios. So it is about the context, the experience, the practice, the people around you. There may be some innate qualities, but to me, if you focus on the latter, that's within our control. We can develop practice and change that. Mm. I'd like you to go back to when you were 18. Mm. The reason why I would think 18 is because that's when we start developing a bit of a, a view about ourselves, like a narrative. I know we've got this story going on, but it's where we start essentially talking about ourselves in a context. Looking at yourself, how do you perceptualise yourself now versus what you were 18? Like what, were you, what were you thinking at 18 about who you were and who you are, you know, what you could be? Well, when I was 18, I was, I was at uni, coming out of school, going into uni, and I loved university. I was a very curious person. I loved ideas. I loved people. I grew up in the southeast suburbs of Melbourne, went to a boys' school, a Catholic boys' school. When I got to go to the uni up the road, which was Monash Uni, it just seemed like a huge wide world. And it wasn't just all the people. It was the libraries and the knowledge and the learning. So uni played a big role for me when I was 18. At the same time, I was a musician by training. I was a classical musician. Oh. And I thought, I'm at uni. I want to grow my hair a bit longer and get into louder music. So I taught myself how to play the bass guitar. Great yeah, thank you, Frank. It sounds like you've got some inside knowledge. And the reason I mentioned that was when I was 18, it's very curious. I loved the world. I embraced opportunity. I really let my creativity come to the fore. As well as joining a band, I used to play in the school musicals every year at school and at Monash they were doing West Side Story and I'd always been in the orchestra pit. So I just rocked up and said, I want to audition and be on the stage. So I did West Side Story. You know, I was like a fifth-level Puerto Rican punk. So, I <laughs> But I love that. So that was a lot about where I was at. And then the last reflection I'll make is in terms of my conscious reflection on where I was at in my life and what I was doing, 
I wasn't that conscious about it. I was just going for it. So I remember saying to someone once, it was like I was in this slipstream. Mm. Now, I loved that. I was just, I'd do this, do that, play gigs, go to parties, go to all these amazing lectures, read. I loved reading a lot of books, history, literature, philosophy. Everything was coming to me and I was absorbing it all. But I wasn't sitting down and planning, this is where I want to go, this is what I want to do. I mean, I enrolled in a course and that was going to influence my trajectory. That to me, if you like the, where I was in terms of mindset, full of optimism, full of drive, but just thinking life's coming my way, I'm grabbing it, not reflecting. And, you know, that's what happens sometimes when you're 18 and just taking things as they came. So in a sense, I was quite present. I wasn't thinking too far ahead as long as I had enough money to go and see a band at a pub or things like that and really enjoying life. So that's when I was 18. Yeah. And so, so you think now, I think now compared to when you're 18, how different are you to that person? I'm a lot more grounded now. I still have that curiosity and I'm glad I haven't lost that. A bit more refined. So I love music. I listen to a lot more classical music now. I was originally classically trained. But funny, you know, symmetry of life, the band I was in, and the band got quite serious. We got a record contract. We toured overseas recorded overseas, all through uni. I just did take a few weeks off, go and <laughs> can't do a tour, come back and try and pass my exams. But just this week, one of our early kind of unreleased recordings, which I think we recorded in 1996, so I'm kind of dating myself or showing my age, that just got released this week on a compilation called something like Love the 90s and like an, an <laughs> compilation. Wow. So... I mentioned that because a lot of my loves back then continue with me, but I haven't played a gig for ages and I probably won't play another gig on the bass guitar for a long time, but I still love that. But I finally could afford a few years ago to buy myself a double bass. So yeah. I've got yeah. a double bass. But coming back to your question, I'm a lot more grounded and one of the huge influences in that was having children. I've got three beautiful daughters. Yeah. They're all musicians and they're amazing and now my sort of peak ambition in music is not to go and play a gig somewhere, but to go on like a busk with one of my daughters, you know, mm-hmm. plunk away on the double bass, you'll play the clarinet or she might play the viola or whatever instrument they play. None of them want to do that. They don't, I don't think they're keen on going to some public place and busking for money, <laughs> even though I said you can have the money. But having a family, marriage, commitment, having children, very grounding and also having many, many years in a career. So I still love the contact with creativity. I still read. I read even more now than perhaps before, but have learnt the importance of not just, you know, getting into the slipstream and having the wow moments, but the day-to-day, the importance of focusing on what's in front of you or what's in front of me. And children are very grounding and very immediate in what they require of you as a person and as an adult. So... In that respect, if I think of when I was 18 and where I am now, I've come out of the slipstream probably a few years ago now into the real the realities of life, and that's a good thing. You know, I really enjoy that, mm. but it's also a much more conscious way of living if I can. Yeah, yeah. It's so interesting because I think in some ways, because obviously I know you, you know, from, from work and so forth and you know, exchanges, but I think my reflection of other people's engagement with you as well is that, you know, talked about presence because, you know, being present. And I feel people actually get a sense of you in the present. They feel like you connect with them 
So you're not always thinking about the next thing or you're not mm-hmm. thinking about the past. You're actually connecting with the person. It's a compliment too, I guess, in some ways for you, but in a way that people's expressing experience of you is that you're with them. And I'm just wondering if that that is something which, in a sense, has been with you, and you know, you have lost that capacity. You know, I've lost that sense of connecting yeah. to people. Yeah, look, I, th- I think so. And this goes to your earlier question. You know, are these things innate or are they learned? I've always felt very empathetic to other people, and I think I got that particularly from my mother. Very empathetic, loved stories of other people, loved connection with people. I think I've really inherited that. Also, I have had plenty of practice to meet a lot of people, connect with people, listen and do that in a leadership context. And what I've found over many years in my career is that every person's got a view and it's got an interesting insight. And I learned even just in an office sense to pay respect to any and each person I'm working with. And it'll sound a bit cliched, but I remember when I first started, the executive assistants were kind of all powerful because they often guarded the diaries of their executives are working for and I learned you know they're people too and I have great chats with them and you know rather than think well you're just an EA realize that they're doing a really good job they've got great insight and then eventually I inherited my own if you like karma because one of the executive assistants working in what well, back then it was in the department of premier and cabinet I worked a lot with her and then eventually a few years later she became my executive assistant and I realized you know the importance of every person's role whether they're out in a government context, a CEO yeah. country, or working in the mailroom or an executive assistant. Everyone's got life experience, has got a view. So that empathy was really important. And I think I really practiced that. And I also learned how to turn that into a leadership and management style through my executive coach at the time who said to me, you can actually work as a leader through relationships and not just through smart ideas. And that was a turning point for me as well when I realized I didn't have to be banging the table or really smart with the latest great idea, as a leader, if my strength was through relationships, I could use that as part of my leadership style. And that was a real eye-opener for me. And I learned that, you know, back probably nearly 20 years ago when I first became an executive and I got an executive coach. So mm-hmm. that's where I learned reach out to others, be a bit of a sponge and then work on your, if you like, your signature strengths. Mm-hmm. Don't assume you have to look like other leaders for whom you have worked in the past. Well, that's the whole thing, isn't it? What you're describing there is an individual difference, isn't it? So, you know, how much of that is what you bring of yourself, you know, who you really are in those roles and how much of those, I mean, one often gets lost in the sense of, oh, well, there's people come across and learn things, but you've got to be able to be open to that as well, don't you? That's where I think there's probably a continuum. I'd be in my genetic makeup, however that, happens that I'm more inclined to work with other people and I really enjoy that. Other people who have different personality styles, I'm an extrovert, probably work that out. There's a lot of introverts and extroverts and the way I work would probably not suit people who are more introverted and nor should it. So I also learned to respect difference, see the value in difference and then that won't surprise you, Franco, because you and I know each other well, I then did a lot of work in diversity and inclusion in government and now that's part of my core role because, you know, it's well documented now that good diverse management, diverse boards, diverse ways of thinking makes you more effective. So I love that because my bias towards other people and lots of different ideas is now coming through positively that, you know, the more we can diversify where we get our ideas from, who we work with, how we compile our teams, the better 
the perspectives we bring in and the more likely we can provide better solutions for the community and do better public service. So that's my sort of assumptions and biases and, you know, maybe that is part of innately who I am. Yeah. So let's go to some some key events in your life because that, that sometimes tells us a little bit about who we are and how we respond to things. So so what I want to do is try to get a bit of a picture here and just pull together some Thomas towards the end. Give me a, a low point mm. in your life. Yeah. Well, I thought about this and a real low point for me that stands out above all others, I've already mentioned my mum my and how she was a wonderful influence on me both from a, you know, an upbringing but also maybe, you know, our similar personalities. So my, my mother passed away 20 years ago quite suddenly. Mm. That was a huge shock to me and my family and everyone who knew and loved my mum. And I think it took me about 10 years to recover from that. You know, it took me a couple of maybe a year to really recover from the shock, maybe a few months to sort of just feel a bit normal again. But it took a really long time because she was so influential in my life. But then we do hear from people that talk about from adversity comes strength. And in my own experience, it did shock me and it threw me right off my trajectory. But for various reasons, I was able to recover and strengthen from that. And I... I think at the time, unconsciously used it just to change my trajectory. I was living in Canberra at the time, working in the Commonwealth Government, and originally from Victoria. And after she passed away, I thought, I've just got to get back home, be with my family, get back to my roots. Came back, came into Victorian Government. So I didn't sit down and plan that, but I just knew intuitively I had to get back to you know my home city. And that helped me rebuild my life and bring in happiness and conscious reflection. And I think it also made me a lot more aware of life. So I talked about the slipstream of me as an 18-year-old, probably followed me through well into my 20s. And in my late 20s was when my mum passed away. And I think that was, to me, a real turning point between sort of unconscious living, you know, loving life, enjoying things, to conscious. And, you know, there's a lot of human stories about the moment you get kind of you get banged on the head and you've got to confront life. You know, life is going to require you to step up in a, in a sense. So that was a low point and also a changing point for me. Yeah. It's almost a, the way you describe it is it like, almost like a, a need for attachment. Yeah, yeah. You know, when, you, when your mother passed away, and, you know, in a sense of loss, isn't it, because it's that loss associated with, well, it's your mum and it's a, very, it's a very loving figure in your life and an attachment figure, isn't it? And this need to go back home, isn't it? There's, yeah. there's a, probably a period of your life where, you, where it's always about asserting yourself, isn't it? So it's mm. always a tension between assertiveness and, and a trade-off between assertiveness and attachment, isn't it, in a way? I think so. I think so. And I do remember back then one of the feelings was I've always had my parents. They've always been there for me and one of them is now mm. gone and it was mm. a shock. Not knowing what to do about that, it's that's that to me that attachment idea, mm. and then having to start to create my own groundedness. And of course, mm. I have a wonderful relationship with my father as well. Mm. But to me, coming home was also the start of my more conscious kind of maturity in life, where I had to make my own decisions. I'd already been living independently for like ten years mm. or so before Mum passed away. But after that, there was a real change from kind of early adult years to you're really in it now, even though at the time I knew I needed to be back close to family and friends, which goes back to that other way of managing attachment. 
Yeah, and connection as well. I think. Mm. So, what about turning points? I guess that could be a turning point as well. Yeah, there's a few turning points, and it's always better to choose one, but I'll choose a few. One turning point was when I finished university. I'd been playing music and I'd been recording, playing kind of rock and roll, touring overseas, and studying for seven years at university. And I had to make a decision. Did I want to kind of live hand-to-mouth and be a musician, which was great fun, very stimulating, but, you know, I wasn't going to pay the bills or was it time for me to, you know, get a job, so to speak? So I, I literally decided to head to Canberra and become a public servant. And not many people when confronted with, you know, rock star versus public servant might go for public servant, but actually that's where I was really interested in public policy politics, law, economics, and the history of how our economy comes together, because I love that side of policy. So the first turning point was when I moved to Canberra, and I went there all on my own. I didn't know anyone. I'm quite surprised at my chutzpah. I just packed up my little (laughs) station wagon car that used to hold all my bass guitar equipment, but this time it held all of my life possessions, drove up to Canberra, and that was the first five years of my career in the public service, and I loved it. So that was a turning point. Second turning point, I think, is when I got married, first had children, a huge positive turning point. But also having children, you know, every day, every moment, you've got to be changing nappies and playing in the park and cleaning the house and having baths and cooking food and just all the so-called mundane, but they're the things that happen hour to hour. And that also takes you out of your own world and you're there to support someone else who's totally reliant on you. And then the third turning point, I know I've put a few in here, is we moved as a family from Melbourne to regional Victoria. So I lived in regional Victoria for 10 years and I loved that, just that freedom and that open space. And I moved from living on like maybe an eighth of an acre in the inner suburbs of Melbourne to nearly three acres of beautiful block up in Mm. the Macedon Ranges and then moved further up into Bendigo. That really reset, you know, I grew up in the suburbs of Melbourne and here I was living in regional Victoria Mm. A really different perspective on communities, on government, on the need to work more flexibly, help my leadership as well at the time. So there's a few turning points. What's the themes across all those turning points from your perspective as you outline them? What do you you think are the themes? Those themes are often stepping out and moving into a different space, leaving Melbourne, leaving my earlier sort of university or, if you like, late adolescent days, going to a completely new city, which was Canberra, I know when we left Melbourne and went to regional Victoria, again, that was a moving away and setting things up on our own and on ourselves. And then with children, it was having to take responsibility for someone else who was completely dependent on you. So These are incremental things, are they? They're they're just choices and there's not like you're not sort of like transitioning. You're moving from city to country or you move from university to Canberra and career change. Is that the theme for you? Is Is that your theme? Yeah, look, there are a few big shifts. So even in my career, 20 years of public servant and then I decided to go to the private sector and go to consulting. Isn't it you say that because when you did it, I was so surprised. Yeah. Now I'm not surprised, actually. Yeah, well, it's interesting that you ask me because I would think I'm generally sort of a conservative in the way I like to get a lot of advice and consult a lot with people and then take a decision, conservative in just sort of that humanistic sense. But I've also packed up my bags and moved to another city where I didn't know anyone, leave a beautiful big city like Melbourne, which is an awesome city, and go and live in regional Victoria or leave public service while really enjoying what I was doing 
because I felt like that was a good thing. Part of me surprises me. I think, well, where did that come from? And I don't know where that comes from. Partly maybe going back to my earlier comments of you, Franco, is maybe that's my curiosity for life and trying different things. Now I'm back. In a sense, I've I've come back to Melbourne, back to government, and I'm now thinking, well, I want to at least really consolidate this. So I do tend to move in about five-year blocks. But you're right, Franco, I've made some decisions that even when I reflect, I think, wow, how did I have the chutzpah to make that decision? <laughs> well, you know, it goes back to that issue of attachment and connection. I'm working for a lot of clients in my private practice around this issue around attachment. And, uh, you know, like we all have attachment and assertiveness. And this element here, I think, of maybe there's an element here about your attachment never attached completely. Mm. There's a part of you that needs to certainly actually get yourself out of that context, right? And just explore another part of yourself, right? Like I said, there's trade-offs between those two things I see quite clearly with you in a way. You know, unless you're drawn really from emotional triggers, like emotional points in your life, like your mum's dying. I mean, in mm. a sense, coming back to I've got to go back home. There's an emotional drawingness back to getting back to Melbourne. I'd be really interested to see what the next chapter looks like. <laughs> oh, well, right. You know, where does it go? Like, you know, like a, what is my, it own, my own life as a as a book or as a story. One quick reflection on that attachment theme, which I think is very relevant and insightful, is that we had a really. I've got a brother and two sisters, a really supportive, loving home upbringing, and I remember saying to mum and dad, particularly mum, that they brought us up so well that we all went far and wide. So my brother then went to London for a while. My sister lived in Japan. My other sister was in Canberra and then she lived in Cambodia for a while. So, And I lived Canberra, which is not as glamorous as London, Tokyo or Phnom Penh, but we had the confidence to go out. But interestingly, when that big event happened in my life and mum passed away, I think both of my sisters and me all ended up back in Melbourne and my brother ended up in Sydney. So even as what I would think of as a strongly supported family, that reverberated through our lives, certainly did through mine. So, what I mean, just on this part about turning points and low points, I guess the high point also reflects a little bit about how we how we enjoy those moments and what are, how do we what do we garner from them? Like, you know, mm. how do we celebrate them? So tell me a little bit about a high point. Yeah, well, when I think about high points, there's, for me there's a lot to choose from, so it's hard, but I'll give you a couple of examples. And these are more sort of snapshots to moments where I just thought, wow, this is amazing. So I mentioned I was a musician. We went and played um, some shows in New York. So here I am in my mid-20s. I'd done a little bit of overseas travel, but not much. And I'm in New York City and, you know, we're playing gigs. But when I was there, I didn't really want to just pretend I was a minor sort of B-grade rock star. I wanted to go to all the museums and just walk the streets and go to Greenwich Village and just soaking in that atmosphere. So that was a high point because I don't know how I got out to New York as some kid from the southeastern suburbs of Melbourne, but there I was. And funnily enough, while I was going to these museums and walking through the streets of Manhattan, I'd go back to the hotel, study my law books because I was finishing my law degree. And then that night we'd go and play a pub. We played CBGB's, which was often called the home of punk rock. So that was a high point in a kind of cultural sense. Other high points were 
I remember when we first moved to regional Victoria, I just felt so connected living on this beautiful piece of land on the side of Mount Macedon. And it was like, that was the first time I felt, wow, I own this land, me and my wife and family, and this is our place and space. And I really, and I felt really close to nature. It was, you know, I really loved that and getting my hands into the soil and growing veggies and things like that. Another high point in a career sense was once I had become a secretary, never having anticipated or planned to become a secretary, when I realised through good coaches and mentors that it was about leadership and after maybe a year or two of learning my way through the job, I loved that leadership role. So that was a career high point and I've loved coming back now as the Victorian Public Sector Commissioner not so much because I can say, you know, I've got this interesting title, but because the impact it can make across Victorian government and public sector about leadership and making an impact for community. So they're a series of high points. The other high points which are like lived all the time was all the joy my children would bring me. You know, my like even in the last month or two, my daughter's getting really high marks in their music exams, not because I want to get them, them to get high marks, because just they love their music or mm. kicking football with my youngest daughter because she loves football, taking them to see an AFLW football tournament in Bendigo mm. when we're living in Bendigo. Mm. In a sense, you get the big, like I'm in this international city as a musician, if you like, that's the big one, or I'm leading this big organisation and then you get the everyday and the high points in the everyday are as, as good as the high points that are the bigger picture, which comes back to that whole idea of trying to live with what's in front of you, that present kind of idea. Mm, that's great. Christian, I've noticed, but if your wife was listening to this interview, which obviously she probably will down the track, but what would she be connecting in her own mind about you? What would, what would be things that she would say about you? Yeah, well, she knows I'm very committed to the girls and sometimes she'd say I get a bit flighty and get <laughs> taken away by these big picture ideas and that I do need to be grounded and practical. And also both her and I, we have great perseverance and persistence. When we want to do something, we really do it. And, you know, values has been really important as part of the family story. When you go out, out there, I guess the way you describe it, flighty, but... You know, you sort of go out there because you've got very high levels of openness to experience, I guess, you know, this, this level of curiosity and exploration, right? Do you drag yourself back in or do other people around you drag you back in? I think earlier in my life it would be other people. I would go off yeah. and do all this sort of stuff, but increasingly, well, I drag myself back in now or I bring myself back in. One thing I learned years ago from a really good kind of coach and mentor and this was sort of mid-career, was the importance of mindfulness. And I had a mindfulness practice for on and off. Okay. So when I used to commute from Bendigo to Melbourne, I'd meditate on the train every day. Yeah. And then, but interestingly, that didn't come out of the blue. When I first got to uni, I was really interested in, you know, meditation and learning more about things like Buddhism, not in a kind of a religious sense, but just in a connected sense. So I learned to meditate at uni. I did one of those free courses kind of gave it a go for a while, on and off. Mid-career, I realised how important that was as a public servant professional, mm. just keep that sort of quiet space. And since coming back to Melbourne, I've renewed that every day, sit down and just watch my breath for 20 minutes and do a lot of walking, eat well. So that whole idea of wellness and mindfulness, almost as a 
conscious leadership strategy. So I talk to a lot of other people in the leadership space about you need to have your own grounding approaches and it doesn't have to be meditation. It could be swimming, walking, running, doing art, anything that brings you into the moment. So I do that of my own volition and that keeps me very grounded. If I ask you, where do you sit in a spectrum of your fellow leaders in you know in the public service or in the private sector like where would you be would you be like in a an outlier would you be like an inline would you where would you where would you put yourself yeah i wouldn't put myself as an outlier but i do i've really enjoyed the innovation and the pushing of the boundaries in my career mm-hmm. so sort of on the outer of the inner that's <laughs> <laughs> so a good place to be yeah, fudge that. And that's also because, so for example, coming back to Victoria as the new public service commissioner, I know all the secretaries, I know a lot about government and Victorian government. So in that sense, I'm an insider, but I've also learned a lot from three years in the consulting and private sector. And I learned a lot from living in regional Victoria. They brought me different perspectives. So I also like to, when I was doing public sector innovation, the first thing you come up against, and Franco, you would have experienced this too, is no, we can't do that because no. So I then learned from both theory and practice that behind every no is the innovation you're looking for and you've got to just persist, try it out, maybe it won't go somewhere, but usually behind that no is a really interesting yes and an innovation. And so to me, that's why I don't want to be a complete inlier or an insider but you've got to understand how government works. You know, we're working with taxpayers' money and democratically elected ministers. Mm. So we have to respect our role in that. We can't just come up with the next crazy idea because we think it's a good idea. Mm. But we've always got to be questioning how can we do things differently, how can we do things mm. better for the community. So that's where I like to be nearer that boundary between the outlier and the inlier. No, that's a good place to be. And I expect it no different in a way. I mean, in the sense, I think, you know, you, you do change within, don't you? Let give you a bit of a profile of what I think is going on there from, a, yeah. I guess, a psychological perspective of personality. So the way I think about personality is that it's got three layers to it and they're not necessarily sequential and they build on each other in a way and they evolve together. And so there's a trait perspective, which is sort of who you really are, right? This is what I do and how I feel. And these are sort of the, the actor in a sense, because we come into the world as a social actor because we're always yeah. engaging with people as right from the day one when we're born, you know, and uh, our mothers are holding us and or our fathers and we're sort of parading ourselves uh, in front of others. And a large part of that's genetic material as well. Like there's there's a lot of studies that look at the, you know, the 20 30% of genetic endowment about who we are. And these are reflected largely around five or six type of factors, which you're probably very familiar with. But so this element around... Openness to experience, this capacity to be curious, open to different ideas, the trade-offs between conventional and unconventional. And uh, not surprisingly, you're very at the high end of that. So this, and, and I think we've talked about this, this, I think we always go back to this element here about, yeah, well, it might have been refined or it might have been tapered or it might have been contained a little bit, but it's still there within you. Mm. There's a capacity to come out in a, in a very fulsome way. And then you've got a context that you're in, isn't it? that sort of contains it in a sense, but it's sort of there. It's always there. You know, you're probably thinking now, like, oh, how can I use this yeah. for a different purpose or, you know, how can I use this today for some other reason? So in a way, this is you, right? This is the creative side part of you. And also what comes out of that is this 
you know, not in a political sense, but there's liberalism as well, being really mm-hmm. open to different ideas as well. So it's not just about just being creative in a sense, but open to many different ways of forces. And the way you just described New York really describes it you know, like in a nutshell. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 20, in the mid-20s, yeah? went to New York, performed, reading law books, explored muse- museums and in a whole range of artistic things. I mean, that's probably you for the rest of your life, right? And it sounds fantastic to be that person, isn't it? There's another part here around conscientiousness, which I think, I don't know, you sort of downplayed a little bit here, but actually you come across very strongly as as very conscientious and goal-driven mm. and completing. And these are, I mean, you could never have gone on your jobs, type of jobs you've done without being highly conscientious. Mm. So there's element, this need for, you know, getting to the outcome, driving a process, being able to achieve those things are really quite important. And that's that resonates with me. That resonates with you as well. Yeah. You say you're an extrovert, right? But in fact, I'm just wondering if actually that's more open to experience. Yeah, that could be a better way of framing it. Because I love a quiet moment with a good book on obscurity. Yeah, I think there's an element to you that you're, you're in the middle there. You're not like it, you're not like an in, completely. And it's all about, from a psychological perspective, it's all about dopamine levels. Mm-hmm. So in a way, like it, you know, you don't need to have a great deal of engagement socially, although you enjoy it and you're not going to go away from that. But it's, but I think it's more what you describe as extroversion is more about I'm really actively engaged in the world. Mm. That, that could be a solitary thing as well as a, as a so, part of a group. Yeah, I think that's, again, that resonates with me, Frank, yeah. the way you I say. Agreeableness. I think that there's there's an element here around agreeableness. So, so you think about this, and we're, we've got to come across people in our lives that aren't necessarily that agreeable. You know, they're, they're more into they're up for a fight or they're, you know, at the extreme level or they're, they're always about trying to find some level of a but in that in that process. For you, though, it's more in the context of I'm going to cooperate. Mm. I'm, going to, I'm going to try to seek a level of diversity to and, and incorporate people into my life so I can actually learn from that. But also I've got something to give them, I've got something to give me. There's, there's also this element here of being needing to serve others. Mm this uh, need to meet others' needs. So it could be at the extreme level, not that you are at the extreme level, but there's, the extreme level could be, so none of these are bad or good in, in themselves, but at the extreme level it could be sometimes you meet overmeet the needs of others. And that's not necessarily the way I see you because you've got some constraints around that. But there's an element there around that the needs of others are really quite important for you and, yeah. and also the way you think about diversity, which is also part of your openness to experience, but, but also part of your agreeableness as well that you see actually that is an important value for you right? yeah. resonates and it makes me think well mate it's no chance that i'm in the public service that's right that's right i just yeah i was actually interested so if i can but how'd you find being in the private sector look i learned a lot but i didn't like the sales component of it <laughs> I preferred to work with people because there was something that was good we could work on together yeah in fact, when i worked best in a commercial sense as a consultant was when we were thinking about the opportunity to solve something rather than you're going to pay me all this money and I'm going to bring in all these people to work on the issue. The ability to learn and meet a whole lot of people and work with every government in Australia as a consultant, I didn't find it as my natural place or home as much as being back in the public service. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? And in some ways I remember Grant here, which, you know, Mm. I know very well, you know, my old secretary of treasury and education, like he used to always say to me, often people ask me why I don't work in the private sector and Grant will always sort of say, well, you know, what would be my purpose there? Yeah. You yeah. know, like I'm interested in value adding. 
but uh, you know, like I'm not saying that that doesn't doesn't exist in the context of the private sector, but it's uh, it's isn't it this way here? Now, this is another part around this this sort of five factors, right? Around neuroticism. Now, this is the emotionality, anxiety, depression, impulse control, anger, right? So this is the area I think around you is very low, right? This is like a low end for you where you you don't allow yourself. Unless I guess don't allow yourself, but don't really get into that sort of space mm. around. I'm just saying you never get angry or don't get anxious or fearful, but it's not necessarily a dispositional trait for you in a sense of that you're able to ride through that emotion. And I think that that's, you know, if you think about leadership and where leaders, the forefront view about leadership is around emotional connection, emotional control, right? Mm. Able to understand, maybe acknowledge actually the way I'm feeling, but not being taken away from it as well. How do you feel mm. about that one? Yeah, well, I think particularly throughout my career, I've put a high value on calmness as a, the yeah, way. Yeah, the that, mindfulness. And, yeah. yeah, but I've also learned, particularly in the last few years, that it's important to be aware of and be comfortable with emotions. And the thing in the public service is a long tradition of dispassion and advice and yes. the implication that you can't bring your emotions and your passion to things, but emotions and passion help drive things yes. and drive purpose. So I think I've become more aware of and open to the fact that we've got to own our emotions and not always try to push them down. At the same time, I've not ever been an overly kind of, you know, outwardly emotional person. So I've kept that element of calmness in how I work with others and have become more aware of the importance of being, you know, at one with emotions, whether they're mine or other people's. Yeah. I just wonder if the, for you there's no internal, like you've got these two aspects of external and internal churn. Like you might have internal churn but not express it. Mm. Or you might have external churn, like you might, you know, or you might express and feel it. Like, how would you describe? Are you feeling it, or are you just controlling it? There's probably still an element of control there, mm. but the other thing is, I kind of set up my external environment so that I could decompress. So when I lived in regional Victoria, I commuted mostly by train. So at the start and end of every day, every working day, where I was working in Melbourne, I would have this time to reflect to decompress, to meditate, to transition from the intense work environment to a very different home environment. I should say I, I worked sort of on average about three and a half days in the city. So I also used to work locally, which allowed me just to decompress from the whole week and have that quiet reflective time. And I used to run through one of the local national parks, like jogging. That was a great sort of wellness, fitness, mindfulness practice for me. And jogging amongst huge trees on the side of a beautiful mountain or through when I moved to Bendigo through the goldfields, digging tracks and so on, that was a really good way of keeping that calmness and letting the emotions work their way out of my body. So there's a few ways that I've worked on this in the past. And now that I'm back in Melbourne and we're all under lockdown, I spend a lot of time walking around the beautiful gardens near the edge of Melbourne because I do feel that connection is very grounding and it also helps me reflect on the day and work out, physically work out of my body any anxieties I may have accumulated through the day. Yeah, that's interesting. So we've gone through this, this layer, right, and that's the traits, dispositions, very early development, sort of stuck with you most of your life. It's probably there, you know, feeding away. So, But then you're a motivated agent and the motivated agent is something 
again, starts pretty early in life too, but they start recognizing, well, you know, I am a little bit like this, but I, I really want to get someplace. You know, I've got goals and I've got values. And, and for you, I think this, this tension between it's just in your life, I think around three things, I think around attachment, assertiveness, and the need to serve. There's sort of three things that come up for you around motivations. And I sort of come across this in the context of your emotional needs that satisfy emotional needs for you mm. about a need for, well, attachment, I think, is very, very common, right? This need to feel connected. There's also a need to break out, right, not to be under control. So there's this impaired limits that we sometimes feel when we're younger and you know, I want to break out, right? I want to express well, myself. Right? Get in the car and move to camera. Yeah, that's right. And there's all these sort of things, right? But there's also this element here about need and serve and service. You know, I'm just wondering. There's probably a, a strong aspect here of self-sacrifice and subjugation. Really, you know, like I, I'll, I'll put my needs back and I'll serve others. Or mm-hmm. there's probably an element there for you as well around that motivation. How does that resonate with you? Yeah, that that does resonate with me. And you know, one thing that I know really led to my mother's health problems was she was always looking after everybody else except for her. It's hard for me to reconcile wanting to be very altruistic and help others and serve others with serving and helping myself and, you know, look, making sure I've got enough to keep my cup filled up and being more aware of that and and not having to apologise for that. So, you know, if you like that upside of serving others is you can make a great impact. I can make a great impact on other people and benefit the community. If you like the flip side is, I can deny looking after myself and put myself second to others. And I think there's a bit of a trap in there and it's important to think, well, no, I need to nourish myself and do what's important to me so I can, you know, have a good life and also help other people. So that's been a a learning and a maturity, maturation process for me as well. And I guess that connects to this narrative, which is the third layer, because it's this changing narrative about ourselves, right, that propel us in a way, our story who we are, like the Adam of the 20s versus the Adam in the 30s and the 40s, you know. And so what does the 50s look like? You know, you're not there yet, but, you know, what does that look like in the context of, you know, your career and your marriage and your fatherhood and, you know, potentially might be a grandfather. Like, it's, you know, in the context of your role in society in a sense of this evolvingness about who I am. But the base of it all is this dispositional traits and motivation that sits there. But uh, in a way it's like a... It's moving, isn't it? It's a moving, mm. it's a moving feast of who I am. I'm either the Adam in the country or the regional, regional mm. Victoria, or I'm the Canberra Adam, or I'm, mm. you know, living yeah. in Melbourne, in Victoria, in Melbourne. Yeah. So there's an element here of this changing narrative. And it might not change that much as well. Like it might be quite adaptive in that context. Yeah. 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 And I think a couple of quick reflections there. I mean, the whole COVID and me relocating back to Melbourne, and my family is still in Brisbane because of school and a whole lot of other things that's going to put a lot of pressure on family and that's going to change, I think. The other reflection that's a much broader kind of story is I remember hearing the wonderful story about Janana Guzmao, who was, you know, mm. as some people know, the first, I think, independent president of Timor-Leste. And then maybe 10 years after that, he stepped back and he was like the prime minister under the president. And then he was interviewed and he said he wants to, if you like, go backwards in his career and the last job he wants to have is the mayor of the local village. Mm. So he led the country and then he stepped to that next level of more of the administration and that his life's goal is to then go right back to the local and the community. And 
I remember when I was living in regional Victoria thinking, what a great goal, nearer the end of my career, to be on more local community boards and groups and working with local community. Now, I'm back into the sort of middle of Victorian government, so that doesn't fully fit that narrative. And I don't really know actually what my narrative, how it's going to, what the trajectory will continue to be, but I've learnt more and more about the value of local connection and community as well as keeping an eye on the big picture. So, you know, I'll be curious to watch my own story as it unfolds to see if I get closer to community wherever that will yeah. be where I live. Yeah. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Even the way you describe that, in a sense, it connects a little bit back to what we talked about earlier really, because it's, in a way it's both those two elements, isn't it? Yeah. Around that, that need of connection and a need for exploring, you know, it's just this, this constant thing. I don't know. Have you found that really useful today? I found this such an insightful discussion, Franco. So I have. And it's great because I do try and reflect on these things, but I learn so much. So I've learned a lot just today from this conversation and even hearing my own themes from my story because I'm sharing it with you and you're reflecting it back to me. I find that so valuable. So I have found this very useful today, Franco. Well, that's great. That's great. I really appreciate you filling out all the surveys and participating. All the best as you continue along. All right, thanks. Um, Take care. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. Please let me know what you think of this podcast episode or the podcast series in general. I respond to all reviews and really love to hear your feedback and suggestions for future guests to interview. You can also rate the episode on your favorite podcast platform. I would really appreciate this so that other people can hear about how you experience the show. If you want some insight into your personality portrait, visit my website to take a quick personality quiz to start the ball rolling. You can also sign up to a regular newsletter, which you can find on the podcast webpage. Look forward to presenting new and interesting guests soon. Bye for now.